0: Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest on the programme is former gang leader and now advisor to the government, Sheldon Thomas. Sheldon Thomas, welcome to Facing the Canon. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to have you here. I know a little bit about your story and it's an important story to tell. Your parents came from Jamaica That's right. and then you were born yeah, in London. London yep. So you grew up in London. Yep. Growing up in London, did you experience racism?
1: Yes, we, um, we experienced racism in a real bad way and it wasn't exclusive to me many of our my generation, we've faced such extreme racism. And one of the uh, stories I can talk about, and it's that's in my mind so rigidly, because it was the most traumatic experience because up until then we hadn't experienced anything. And this was 1974. Um, and it was the year of the World Cup in Germany and we was on our way to into the park, and most black kids didn't support England at the time because there wasn't any black players. So we supported Brazil because Brazil had black players, and we all took the names of different Brazilian stars: Revelino, Jardino, Pella, and all of those kind of guys, and Testa, and all of that. So we took. We was on the way to the park, and as we was going to the park, two police officers was coming down, and as they approached us, one of them shouted out, Gollywog. Now, none of us even knew what the word "gollywog." This is nineteen seventy-four. We're about nine years old, ten years old. We don't. We've never even heard that word. So, I looked up. We all looked up. But they looked like they wanted to hurt us, and we're just little tiny kids, and they looked massive. And so, it become Kennington became a place of. How are we going to navigate ourselves just getting to the park?
0: Yeah, with how our, are you going to survive?
1: You not know, just yes. get into the park. Like, if it wasn't what name calling, if it wasn't being thrust in the neck, um, it, it 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 just became like a like a um, a kind of um, obstacle course that you have to try and navigate just to get to the park. And then it got worse because our parents weren't like the parents of today where they kind of looked at the schools and was making sure that the schools was the right one. It wasn't like that. Back in those days, they just went for the first school. And the school they put us in was in the right, in the area of racism, which was Elephant and Castle. And so we we was walking to school from Kensington, having to pass police stations and the National Front just to get to school. And some people will look at that and think, Wow, did that really happen? Yes, because if we went anytime we was going to school, it wasn't a case of just getting to school. It was a case of are we gonna make it to school on time? Because the chances are we're gonna get um, roughed up by the police or chased by the national front. Now, thank God the National Front didn't get up too early in the morning, so they were they were later in the day. But the police they'd be at the top of the road, so we have to go down another road. And sooner or later, they began to work out which way we're going. And every time we was going to school, they'd name call us, they'd throw egg at throw egg at us. Um, and when we kind of shouted back at them, because obviously we're getting older now, we're kind of like 11, um, they'd jump out the car and, you know, threaten to use their baton on us. So... The racism that we were facing, me and Christopher, a normal kid in today's time would have killed a police officer. Yes. It made me realise that we're in a war. We're in a constant war. And that constant war made us more angry. And I'll be honest, by the time I was
0: 13... I wanted to kill white people. Yes, because you were receiving all this uh, racism, abuse from the police, which was hugely surprising, but also from many others, including the National National Front. Front. And so, I mean, as you said, you're only a teenager. And so you then thought, I need a support. I need some kind of gang um, which you called a posse, yeah, didn't that's, you? Yeah,
1: that's, that's why you remember,
0: that's why. And that's how you began yeah. to be part of a gang. Just tell us a little bit about th- that whole gang concept. What was that about? So basically, um,
1: when we would go to school, all of us would be talking about what happened to us with the police and the National Front at the weekend. And then... I came up with the idea that we've got to protect ourselves because we can't keep going out and being attacked and being brutalised physically and mentally. So I decided that we need to start a posse, what they today they call gangs. Yes. So it actually started in school, okay? And so basically what it was, was that we would not go anywhere on our own anymore. We would walk in a posse. Jamaica had a posse called the Shower Posse, which was a a very violent gang. So we wanted to link ourselves to them. So I formed the posse in order to defend ourselves. And I think that was the beginning of our downfall because we began to self-destruct because with no outlet of anger, because we couldn't go home to our parents because my mum and dad were just a little bit clueless they were more passive, they were more interested in 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 um a, a, turning a blind eye to racism yeah um they were more interested in just getting on because they believed England saved them from poverty and all of that, so they had this concept of l- don't upset no one in Britain um so that we can get on and us being the first generation born to West Indian parents in the 60s, we didn't want that anymore. We no, didn't no. want that concept. We we believed that, you know, we have a right to um, be treated decently. And um, when I formed the posse, I think everything went pear-shaped in my mental thinking. I began to have a dislike a real hatred towards white people, and we all did, S- to the point where it would just take a police officer to look at us the wrong way, and we would um, attack him. Uh, but
0: the the thing is, Sheldon, you're all teenagers, yes. which is remarkable. I mean, some of you were 12, 13, yeah. 14, yeah. and you would go to a national front uh, oh, yes. in order to fight people, yeah. So uh, violence increased, and then on top of that, you got involved in in drugs yes. and drug dealing, yeah. and before long, guns. Yeah. So there was a real escalation. Yeah, a hundred percent. And the, the, and this is what ha- what
1: happens when you're so angry and so full of hate. Hate goes into these other realms, and so what happened was because we were so angry. It was easy for the Jamaican gangs or the Jamaican posses to groom us. Today they use the word grooming, but back then it wasn't grooming. It was just like, come and, come and, come with us. And the Jamaicans knew the way to get us was to say, listen, they don't like you because of the color of your skin, bruv. Come and sell, come and do this. Now, I personally wasn't a drug dealer. I was what you would call an enforcer. Okay. So an enforcer is somebody that people would go to, to, Um, extract money from somebody or to um, beat somebody up. So because of my violent nature and the hatred I had for the system and and white people and the National Front, a lot of the gang would use that to say, come and deal with this guy for us. You know what I'm saying? So for me, it was a case of, I was like
0: the enforcer and that involved a lot of violence yeah we, I mean we're talking about breaking kneecaps yeah. breaking people's jaws yeah and, so we are you to were bec- involved yeah. in that
1: I, I mean unfortunately the self-destruction we self- imploded and so I began to turn against people that looked like me. And today, you know, you call it they, not you, but the 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 world says black and black gun related violence or black and black violence,
0: and we were the beginning of that. We began to turn in on ourselves. Yes. So, and and it escalated, and then with the uh, use of guns, yeah. uh, many of your friends. Um, we had were, we had our. I think in our gang, we first held a gun at
1: fourteen, fourteen, fourteen years old, and a number uh, of your friends
0: died. Yeah.
1: Most of them died in the late eighties. The last one died in eighty-nine. Nine of them were shot dead. The last one was shot fifty-seven times with two MAC tens. He was shot in um Broccoli, Southeast London at five thirty in the afternoon. Two weeks previous to him being shooting shot. I had actually told him leave the lifestyle because I had been shot at. And the, the the bullets missed me and blew the guy's head off next to me. So it, that was my turning point to say, I need to leave. And I was trying to get him to leave and he refused. And um, because he, he had a reputation, he wanted to keep the reputation. But what I was trying to explain to him, there's a younger generation coming through who are more brutal than us.
0: But so when would you say that you were born again and you experienced a transformation? When did that happen? I would say in 1989
1: when the last gang member got shot 57 times, um, I had been shot at myself so much time, but the the, the significant one was the guy who got his head blown his head blown off right next to me and he had a hole in his head. And that was a traumatic experience because up until then, I hadn't seen murders. My friends all died when I wasn't there. So I had only experienced people shooting at me but I had not seen a murder. I had hurt people, tortured people, broken limbs. I'd done all of that, but I had not murdered anyone. So I began to seek the help of an MP. He was called Bernie Grant. Yes. Um, just right. He was the Labour MP. He was the Labour MP for Tottenham. Yeah, for Tottenham. That's right. So I began to engage with him to, to figure out a way to get out of this gangster lifestyle. And then he met up with Diane Abbott, and so Diane Abbott was the MP for Hackney. Um, And so, basically, they then took me to America to meet up with a man called Jesse Jackson. And so, when I met up with Jesse Jackson, because at that time, the National Black Caucus was really a big organisation in America. Um, And so, I met up with Jesse Jackson, and I would say that was the first time that, he, somebody had spoken to me about the plan God has for my life because up until then I wasn't a born again Christian I was religious yes don't commit crime on a sunday don't use women don't they, I was about like that so it's a bit like the old testament I was a bit law so um he began basically what he done was he began to show me how to look inward because I didn't even know how to look inward And he was showing me that God don't look at the exterior. And he was showing... And and if you listen to Jesse Jackson, he didn't come across like how Christians are now, where they're trying to kind of maybe force a message down. He did it in such a way that was relative to me as a young black man and as a very angry black man. He did it in such a way where he drew concepts like so he said to me um he he used this analogy he said how many black men have you seen hung from a tree so i said i've never seen any apart from in the roots he said he grew up seeing that and he said he could have gone the way of the gangs but he chose the way of christ and I said, that, so i was like, but why would you choose the way of Christ? Because he said, it's, it's, it's easy to be angry, but it's harder to love. Because he was showing me different concepts. So I was like, right. So he was like, and the way he broke certain things down made me began to self-reflect yeah. a little bit more. Because he actually was showing me, racism exists in your mind, but racism doesn't have to control your destiny. Very good, and so he began to break down that he's not he did not allow racism, even though he suffered racism badly, he didn't allow it because he believed in God and the power of God and obviously from there that's when I began to think differently. Yes, now, my transformation didn't happen straight away. I was still smoking drugs, I was still being a violent, but the violence was getting less um I began to. Jesse Jackson also advised me of not only um, becoming a Christian, but he was advising me about education because yeah. I didn't leave school with the qualifications. Yeah. So he, him and Diane Abbott and Bernie Grant began to talk to me about you, God has a plan. Like, so he was saying God has it. I mean, all this was new to me because like, sure. he, he like, God has a plan because he said for those four gunmen to miss you, like the bullets, they were like 50 yards in front. How could they miss? They're shooting at you. They've missed. He said that that was God.
0: Yeah. And I'll be honest with you. No doubt about I it. I
1: believe Jesse Jackson when he told me that. I yeah. did believe
0: yeah. that. God because preserved your life. For that, for a purpose. For a purpose.
1: And that's when Diane Abbott and Jesse Jackson were saying the purpose is for you to go back and bring those other guys out of that gangster lifestyle. Yes. So, and they want, he wants you to show them how possible that is by doing, by changing you first. Because he was saying to me, in order to break racism, we have to change ourselves first. And because he's saying blame culture is really bad because we can, he said, you can sit here all day and blame racism, blame the white man for all your downfall. And he said, you will end up with nothing. But he said, if you go on the mission for God,
0: then you will end up with something great. Absolutely. And God did transform you, both your attitudes and your actions, your belief, your behaviour. um... It came with my wife. She's the one that really done it. And I'm going
1: to be honest with you, it wasn't easy because when you're a gang leader like I was, you're used to making decisions on your own. But when you come into the realm of Christ, the decisions come from God. And when you're not used to that, it becomes a battle, a constant battle. So you get a knockback, and you want to do something, but you've got to go through God in order to go and do it, or to find out what God says about it. And that became a constant battle for me because I felt that the white people should pay; they should pay for the for the for the trauma they caused. But that's not how God sort of sees it. Absolutely, you know, and. You know, there's a scripture that he keeps, so he throws up, you know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And I'm like, so when are you going to revenge then? When yeah. are you going to avenge? You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm always kicking it like that. And I'm beginning to realise that God's transformation on his hand on my life was to change my perception of white people. And that was a mountain to climb. And The perception was, I realised for the very first time when I got saved, not every white person was a racist. No, absolutely. That was the biggest liar, I believe. And I believe this is where the devil comes in. That because I was a child, the devil used that vulnerability to cloud my understanding that there's good and bad in every race. But you don't see it like that when when you're being called every name by police officers, you're being attacked by the National Front, You don't see it like that. And as you get older, it gets worse if no one talks to you. And I was very fortunate to have three important, and I would say the next person important person was Les Isaacs. Yes. Les Isaacs was so, so incredibly important um, because he took my Christianity to another level. I would say I've had some of the best
0: mentors Amazing. in my life that you you won't get that again. You won't no. get that. Men and, will not get that. And we all need those kind of people in our lives to help us. The Lord did use people. The Lord transformed you. Gangs line. tell us about that. How did that start? Well... Um, God gave us a prophecy in
1: 2004 for me and my wife in Barbados. And the prophecy was that we were to train up um, professionals to engage gang members um, through evangelism, workshops, and so forth. And so um, Gangzine was started really as an organisation that would engage gang members where they're at. So we would go into places that most people would never go. We'd go into places where drugs are made. We'd go into places where they keep guns. We'd go into places where violence is an everyday occurrence. We'd going to buildings where you wouldn't even put a dog in because it's so bad. So we would go into those places to engage these gang members. And I, um, Gangzine got started out of that because what we realise, we can't bring evangelism or we can't do workshops the way it was done in the past. We've got to be relevant to the young people or relevant to gang members. And, and the scripture we use was when Paul was saying, I'm a Jew to the Jew um, and so forth. And he was using that analogy to say that he will do whatever it takes to get somebody saved. Um, and what we were saying is that we would try and be relative to these young men and young women to give them an understanding that this is how we got out of this lifestyle. This is how it can happen for you. You understand? Yes. Yes. And because we were, re- we were um, living proof that it worked, we had some good traction. And that's how the whole gang sign exploded from just being an, an evangelin- evangelism outreach organization into an organization now which is a consultancy and training company where we go over the whole we, we engage gang members across the country by local authorities um, we train all professionals on how to understand gang mentality so our workshops are in in two different ways so for instance if I'm in the Caribbean, I will use a lot of evangelism tools sure because the Caribbean is very much a christian based setting. In the UK, it's not the same. So you have to use the Holy Spirit to direct you where to go because most young people do not come from that background, especially white, poor white families. They're not necessarily Christian based. So we tend to use a lot of our workshops and within our presentation, that's when the kind of Christianity comes in parables, but not in the way they would understand sure. it. Because obviously, as you know, in no. England, you can't openly sure. talk about but the
0: values and the principles, principles are all there all in our
1: presentation. And it makes it so that's the reason why I think our gangs workshops is the most wanted in yes. the whole country, because people have realised that what we've put in it is so unique
0: because we've experienced it. Absolutely. And what's so great, Sheldon, is that now, when you think of where you've come from, you are now an advisor to the Home Office. You advise the police. You're an advisor to Scotland Yard. um, And God is using you for a time such as this. And gangs, are on the increase, aren't yeah, they? What's the current? Just give us a few statistics. What's the current situation? So at the moment, we have um,
1: 300 and maybe 316,000 gang members or people affiliated to gangs now you've got to understand those figures are really not the true reflection these are figures that um the children's commission have come up with i would double that i would say that we're more in the, more in the region of 500,000 individual gang members right across the uk so if we went by their figures of 313,000 only 7,000 is known any of the services. That means there are 200 and maybe um, 50 something thousand no one knows about. And that's where I was saying gang's lines work comes in because our work is qualitative. We go to places police don't go. We go to places where people don't go. Hence why their figures don't add up. They, they only seven thousand is known to the social services, youth offending team, and and probation. But most gang members who are in gangs are not have not been arrested. Most gang members are still on the streets. We've got gang members now, as young as nine years old, who are making seventy five pounds a day selling drugs in places of East London, in places in Brent, in places in Arringay, in Salford, in Manchester, in Crocksteff, in Liverpool. We've got young kids. As young as nine. Now, that didn't have to be like that. But what happens sometimes is that when you're sitting around the table with me, the government finds it very hard to stomach some home truths. And the truth is, I actually did say to them over 10 years ago when I sat with Theresa May and Ian Duncan Smith, who was the own secretary at the time, I actually said to them, because of social media, it's going to get worse because every young person's got a phone and you won't be able to control what they see on the phone. And they didn't understand that. And now we have gangs that are coming into into areas like this. We've got gangs who are moving into areas like this where you wouldn't have experienced that 10 years ago. We've got gangs who are are now branching into middle-class suburb areas, recruiting middle-class white kids to sell drugs on their behalf, and those kids are doing it. Why? When When you listen to these kids, one of the things they say, they don't feel loved at home. Yes. We in a society have lost our way We are more focused on business, ministry, church, um, entrepreneurship than we are of the number one reason why we're here to raise our children. And most of us spend more time at work than we do raising our children. And so what happens is these gang members know this. So when they go into these areas and they go into these posh middle-class areas, it's easy for them to groom a child because the child doesn't even feel wanted at home. I had a, a girl that was on my book and she said, well, I don't see my dad. So her idea what a man is, she has no clue because she don't see her dad. So she started going out with a, a gang member from Catford and she lived in Oxford. So we've got to understand that when there's no love in the home, The chances of your child being groomed into gangs is very high. It's not necessarily about poverty because there's lots of poor people in the world who don't commit crimes. Of course. But there's lots of people who have no values at home, who have no love at home, who do commit crimes. And people need to understand rejection. When a child feels rejection from a father figure, at the moment, we've got one in three black kids who have no father's one in four or maybe one in five white kids who have no fathers. How is that possible? How are we living in a world where, habs, where fathers can be just so absent from a child's life and yet the church does not do enough to challenge that, that moral standpoint? Because really it's the Pentecost, it's the church that has got the morals to challenge that in society. And I don't think enough is done no. to challenge that.
0: <sighs> Sheldon. Some awful, bad, dark news, but the good news is, and you are an example, God to, can take someone like you and transform you and use you for good. You are a trophy of God's grace, and it's, it's been a delight to speak with you. Thank you so much, Sheldon, for joining us on Facing the Canon. No problem. I enjoyed it. Wow. Wow. I'm so encouraged that we've got people like Sheldon Thomas and what an encouragement to us that God can take somebody like Sheldon, transform him and use him for a time such as this. And that means if he can do it with somebody like Sheldon, he can do it with someone like ourselves or maybe some of our prodigal children. Let's believe, let's hope in God's transforming grace Thank you for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media. If you could ask God anything, what would you ask? Life is full of big questions. In his brand new book, Will I Be Fat in Heaven? and other curious questions, J. John answers 38 questions that we ask about God, the Bible, the world, and everything in between. How can God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit be one? Why do we believe the Bible is true? Will we recognize family and friends in heaven? And life's ultimate question, does God care about me? Get your copy now at canonjjohn.com.